The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 11th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I tweeted the meanest thing I've ever tweeted today, and it felt good. Here's the background. Paul George is a professional basketball player. Maybe you saw him, if you saw him, suffering this horrendous leg injury. It kept him off the national team. So now he's home, resting, I guess using his time to compose eloquence and insight like the following. This about the Ray Rice incident. If you in a relationship and a woman hit you first and attacking you, then you obviously ain't beating her. Homie made a bad choice. And then... I don't condone hitting women or think it's cool, but if she ain't tripping, then I ain't tripping. Let's keep it moving, LOL. Let that man play. So my tweet to Paul George was, Paul George broke his leg by LOL straight tripping. You know, it was reveling in the injury and pain of another, but I was outraged today. We had all these serious and disturbing developments like the Ray Rice mangled situation. You had Oscar Pistorius being found kind of innocent. You have the presidential speech about ISIL, which, you know, is an ongoing problem that we all knew about. But it's just cue the unbelievably predictable fight over one sentence. ISIL is not Islamic. It's a pro forma line. George W. Bush gave that line all the time. It makes sense to say it. But of course, you have these tin pot theologians griping. Obama just doesn't get it. And of course, what's under that? Oh, maybe he really is Muslim. You don't want to frame this whole thing as a holy war. And it also reassures that people in the Mideast that we're on their side and that they're not the real infidels. It's a perfectly sound line. But of course, we got to argue over it. And the thing that was really getting to me is that the backdrop to all this, if you experience your news through Twitter, is 9-11. And so you have so many 9-11 memorial tweets, and that's fine, and that's proper, but, you know, it's hard to opt out of them. So I just had to unsubscribe to Jake Tapper for a day. I love Jake Tapper, but he was doing this thing where he's just retweeting everyone's 9-11 remembrances, and they were poignant, but it was like standing in front of a garden hose of trauma. I had to turn it off for a second. But I will pause. I will pause from this. Personally, tonight, I will see Ira Glass attempt to dance or something. That will be a nice break. There's an NFL game on, too. Did I mention that I chose at the last minute to see a dance performance? Oh, don't worry. I have nursed and curated my Ray Rice outrage. That will be in the spiel. And before that, I'll talk to a professional wrestler who makes his fortune as a heel. He's a Muslim heel, and the crowd screams pro-America things at him, and he revels in it. It's a good living, too. But first... President Obama talks to the nation. We know what he said. Let's think about what else he was communicating. Yesterday, President Barack Obama spoke to the nation about plans to rout the terrorist group ISIL. But what we wanted to talk about today, because the content of the speech has been gone over, it's more than the content, actually. It's some of the subtle implications, some of the choices of how, where the speech was delivered. And joining me now is Josh King, who was director of production for presidential events in the Clinton White House. And he has an excellent podcast that focuses on policy, politics and perception. It's called Polyoptics. Hello, Josh. 
Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming on. So the content of the speech, first of all, would you say that this was the sort of major initiative that necessitated a primetime address? Well, obviously, they've been hearing the footsteps literally and figuratively over the past couple of weeks, Mike, ever since Martha's Vineyard. And I think there was such a drumbeat, to use another metaphor, of a need for this kind of address by the president that this rose to one of those occasions where you ask the network presidents to make some time in their evening schedules and uh, clear it out for the president of the United States to make some comments. Then it becomes a question for Dan Pfeiffer, Jen Palmieri, and the White House staff to say, look, if the White House complex, those 18 acres bounded by I Street and Pennsylvania Avenue, is basically a Hollywood soundstage with a bunch of different venues that you could choose from, which venue you're going to choose. So notably, he did not speak from the Oval Office. I have the stats on presidential addresses from the Oval Office. George H.W. Bush used that setting 11 times, Bill Clinton 13 times, George W. Bush 6 times. It has fallen out of favor in the six years, roughly six years of his presidency. Obama's only used it twice. What are we to make of that? Sitting at a desk, the natural height of a tripod is going to be looking down on a speaker sitting behind the resolute desk. So the angle is not great. And speakers generally don't do as good a job sitting as they do standing uh, and looking into a camera. So physically, it's better, as George W. Bush realized, and the staff signify that, to be standing as you look into the camera, almost to have a better downward angle toward the lens. And of course, it's such a benefit for the president to be able to be introduced with a one-minute cue to the networks and walk out in that stately cross hall, which is the venue that they selected, from the Blue Room right up to the podium called the Blue Goose. The Blue Room behind him lit beautifully to pull out the blue of the curtains with great depth of field, and the cross hall lovely lit so beautifully as well. The problem with the cross hall, Mike, is that it, it is a large marble foyer mm-hmm. and has not the best sound in the world, but visually it's stunning. Tell me about the lighting. Tell me about anything else that would convey the visual that you saw better than I did. Oval Office addresses are an interesting partnership, Mike, between the White House communication staff and the network TV news bureaus called The Pool. And so when the president gets this national television airtime, the White House itself doesn't do the lighting by convention. The network that is assigned this evening to do a production brings in their own outside lighting. But they want to, on behalf of all the other networks that are taking this pool feed, make it as attractive as possible. So I see, as I look at the still picture and then watch the video of President Obama speaking, that the blue room, this massive cavernous oval room behind him, which on a weekend night would probably be completely dark, is lit up like daylight with HMI lighting. So all of the blue and the gold of those curtains comes out. The two presidential portraits behind him come out beautifully. And so it is a TV show partnership between the White House and the networks. Make no mistake about that. Right. I get it. They want it to pop. They want it to look good. They're in the business of impressive visuals. But when you were in that role, was there negotiation? Would you say to them, hey, where's the camera going to be placed? And then they would say here, and maybe you would say no two inches to the left, or what kind of gels are you going to use? Uh, Actually, let me suggest these. How much of that dialogue went on? Oh, there'd be a lot of that dialogue, Mike. And, And I always pushed for a little bit of orange gel over the lighting because it made President Clinton's, uh, Caucasian pallor looked just a little bit better. I also, they 
sometimes network cameramen would casually place their tripods in the Oval Office or wherever we were setting the speech, mm-hmm. and then we would uh, usher them out of the Oval for what we would call a security sweep, the Secret Service would come through and dogs, and, and they'd leave their cameras on, so I'd look through the viewfinder and say, is this perfectly dead on center? And often it wasn't. So I'd take advantage of this time when the network crews were shooed out to gently tweak the tripod just so, so I got the shot exactly the way I wanted it. But at the end of the day, you can't affect it the way they're going to zoom in, zoom out, and keep the camera rolling. Don't tell me your equivalent was going into Maureen Dowd's notepad and gently suggesting a different verb. <laughs> Well, I mean, that does actually bring up a point, which is if it were a print reporter, that level of interaction, perhaps the reporter would chafe. I would submit should chafe when you deal with the visuals and when you deal with the tech guys, are they usually receptive to what you're telling them or suggesting for them? The thing that you as a White House staffer control is where they place that podium and where the president stands. You take advantage of the natural benefits you have, where is the sun in the sky, what time of day is it, what is your setting, what's immediately behind him. The things that they control are the back of the house, the cameras, the tripod, and the lighting and the sound. You want to make sure it's as good as possible. They don't want to screw up. They don't want to think that they, at a momentous time for the president, failed him technologically or visually some way. Right. So when the speech ends, as contrasts an Oval Office speech, I mean, the Oval Office, where does he have to go? He just says, okay, thanks, and then hopes the camera fades however the camera chooses to fade. Here the president is in charge of his exit. He turns around and walks down the hall. What's the uh, benefit of that? Let me tell you something, Mike. This is the big benefit, both the entrance and the exit. This is something Reagan figured out perfectly. We copied him during the Clinton years. The whole notion of motion, if you look at any of the still pictures across the nations and the world's newspapers, there might be a picture of President Obama standing at the podium, but it also probably will show him walking toward the podium, that sense of determinedness that he's about to make an important statement. But even better, Mike, it's the walk away, the retreat, the God bless our troops, God bless America, turn, walk back into, through the doorway, into the blue room, take a right turn out of camera shot. It reminds me so much of that incredible scene of John Ford's The Searchers, the 1956 classic Western, in which John Wayne has delivered Debbie after eight years of imprisonment by the Comanches, and he brings her back from captivity. She's reunited with her family, and all Wayne can do is stand in the doorway, watch a world that he cannot continue to participate in, turn and walk back into nature. And that's exactly, if you want to extend the metaphor, what presidents and last night President Obama could do as he said, God bless America, God bless our troops, turn and walk away. Yeah, I mean, we speak of uh, the olive branches and the arrows. I always think there are two modes of president based on John Ford archetypes. And he famously made a Lincoln movie. But I think a peacetime president is a Jimmy Stewart type or maybe a Henry Fonda type. Those were his two great leads. But of course, a wartime president is always going to want to consciously or unconsciously evoke John Wayne. In this case, is Ethan Edwards, the uh, Civil War veteran who did his duty. The only thing the White House communication staff, Dan Pfeiffer, Gentle Mary, can't control is the musical soundtrack. And as you remember, Ford, as that movie ends, they're playing this song that has that incredible lyric, 
Ride Away, performed by the Sons of the Pioneers with musical lyrics by Stan Jones. A man will search his heart and soul Go searching way out there His peace of mind Josh King was director of production for presidential events in the Clinton White House. He now has this podcast called Polyoptics. We're talking about stuff like this all the time. It's a great listen, and thank you, Josh. Thanks, Mike. And to see a video side-by-side comparison of that John Ford scene that Josh was talking about and President Obama making his walk, go to Facebook.com slash SlateGist. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website. Squarespace is simple and easy. It is beautiful design. It has drag and drop content. Now, I don't want you to be put off by our claim that it's a professional website. You may be saying to yourself, well, I'm not going to do a professional website. I am an amateur. They really mean professional looking. They really mean they could take you with all your lack of Squarespace or website skills, and they could shape you into a website designer. How? The aforementioned drag and drop content, the beautiful design, simple and easy, all these words. But what if that doesn't work out? Well, they have people stationed in New York City, Dublin, and Portland, Oregon, not Maine. And these people will support you through live chat, through email, but also through good vibes. If you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% at checkout. And that also shows support for our show. If people sign up using GIST, they're like, ah, I'll keep advertising with these guys who say weird things about drag and drop that don't really tell people why they should use the website. I'm telling you, it's the cool people in New York and Dublin that you could live chat with. That's the real reason. We do thank Squarespace for their support of the gist. Squarespace, a better web, starts with your website. He is known by many names. He has adopted many guises. A mysterious visitor from the East. A militant, hell-bent on the destruction of the American way of life. And by the American way of life, I mean Hulk Hogan. Sean Devari is a professional wrestler. He's a heel. That means a bad guy. And I think about his career at this moment in world events. Maybe he's even something of a touchstone on world affairs. I don't know. Sean Devari is with me now. Hello, Sean. Hey, how are you guys doing? I'm well. Take me, if you would, take me through some of the characters who you've played over the years. Well, it's kind of funny that it's really been one character. It's just kind of he's had different frames of mind, and the character is is not even really a character. It's me. It's kind of like a foreigner who has lived in this country his whole life, and and everything has been normal, would never think anything otherwise until after 9-11. And then it kind of was brought to my attention that, oh, man, I'm a minority. I'm not like all the other white people in this country. I'm like the you know, the Mexicans and the blacks and stuff, like, we're, we're looked down upon. And my whole life, especially, like, being raised in a white bread state in a white bread town in Minneapolis, Minnesota, like, I thought nothing other than I was, like, a white kid. Right. And then 9-11 happened, and then, you know, I felt a little bit of heat and resentment and tension, and then not to mention in pop culture, all the characters being bad guys that looked like me and talked like me and looked like my family. And then, fortunately for me, that character pro-wrestling copies pop culture, and as all these Arab villains came up, you know, they said, we need an Arab villain, too, and that's that's kind of how I got my big break, and then that character started that way, 
first he was sympathetic, and then he was angry, and then it got to the point where he was resentful of his own nationality. So, you know, I always imagine like a relationship. Imagine you meet this beautiful woman and you fall in love with her, and then then she starts cheating on you, or then it gets hostile, and then you know your frame of mind, even though it's a person that you fell in love with, your first love, it, and my first love was America. It it kind of changed because they kind of turned their backs on me. You were born in 84, so when 2001 hit, you were 17. Now, I know you had been wrestling since you were 15. In that brief period, you know, when you were just breaking in, was there even an acknowledgement of your ethnicity when you were 15, 16? Yeah, you know, I started in 99. It happened in 2001, those couple of years. Like it, was, it was like, God dang, you're doing that old stick from the 80s, you know, the, the villain from Russia, or the villain from the Middle East, like... Because I'm new material. The Iron Sheik, essentially, right? Yeah, exactly. Iron yeah. Sheik or Sheik Adnan Al Casey from right. the AWA or Nikita Koloff or any foreigner who was just hated because he was a foreigner. I think 99 when I started, that was kind of passe and there, there was no more thinking of that. was like 80s wrestling, you know, and we were, we thought we were the cutting edge. We were like the new reality TV. We were like the early 2000s wrestling. But yeah, as soon as 9 11 happened, like every promoter was begging me, like, yo, can you wear a turban? Can you do, can you wear these genie pants and the 20 toed boots and come out to that sitar music and all that crap? Tell me about the period when either they tried to turn you sympathetic or you thought the way to go was a sympathetic Arab character. Well, that, that happened uh, one time in WWE in 2005, I want to say, going into 2006, where UPN uh, was the network we were on, I guess, like the CW now. They really hated our characters. They thought that people had a hard time differentiating between pro wrestling being real and fake, and they said that we don't want these characters on there. And, and your characters, let me interrupt, your, you wrestle alongside a guy who called himself Muhammad Hassanis, right? Yeah, Muhammad Hassanis, right. You were Khosro Davari. Yeah, that's actually my dad's real name. That's awesome. We just had something more foreign than Sean. How do you walk the line of knowing the character you have to play, but not insulting a culture? It's really weird, too, because I don't know, because there was a lot of stuff that we did do that I could see how some people, Middle Eastern people, would be offended or say, like, hey, you're, you're giving us, like, a, a bad impression. Just call us Arabs, for one. They call us Arabs on TV all the time, and then they'd say, I'm from Iran. Like, Arabs are from the United Arab Emirates. You know, they're from Saudi Arabia. They're not from Iran. You would speak to your partner, right, in Persian, and they'd call it Arabic. Yeah, I speak Farsi, yeah. yeah. The language that the Persian speak is Farsi, and they would say it's Arabic on TV. But those are all just kind of, like, little nitpicking things for the majority part just a story we were getting along and the message we were passing along i've yet to come across anyone that says hey you're putting us in a bad light if i ever met somebody they're like oh my god can i have an autograph quick take a picture together can i put this on my facebook like that's usually the response i got yeah and the last thing i want to ask you and we were talking about this before we started rolling but i just think it's really fascinating that you were making the point that your dad who came to america fled the situation in iran and now is extremely successful owner of restaurants, and you are two sort of, well, two clear versions of the American dream, but in different and weird ways. Yeah, it really is crazy. Like, like you're right. My dad came to the United States and, like, you know, as a student on a student visa, was the only way he could get in here into Minnesota. And he was working, like, three jobs. He was a janitor uh, at some hotels, and he also was a dishwasher at a pizza restaurant. And then was promoted to a cook and was promoted a manager and he ended up buying the restaurant. And then he ended up opening up another one. And then he opened up a, a contract sewing business for like the local sports teams in the school district around town. And like, and now he owns like a bunch of like little strip malls that, you know, other businesses rent space from him. That was, that was his dream. And he did it. I had this completely different dream. Not, not something as like, they're both crazy dreams. Both of our dreams are the same as like, I'm going to run away and join the circus. I'm sure everyone in Iran, are you, fucking crazy you're gonna go to the united states and try and 
start a life over there. Like he told me a funny story that in Iran he was a successful uh, interior designer and he had to sell his like sixty thousand dollar BMW to move to the United States to buy a car that literally had a hole in the floor and he could see the street. Like as he would drive by, he could see the street shooting underneath his feet. And I did the same thing. I was in college or in high school, I should say, and I said, I don't want to go to college. I, I want to be a pro wrestler. Like this is what I want to do. And I'm five foot eight, 130 pounds, like, you know, skinny foreigner from, from Minneapolis. And the same thing is, like I said, I want to run away and join the circus. And I expected people to pat me on the back. And they say, you're crazy. Like, just go work for your dad. Continue on what he's doing. He's doing so well. And I said, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be successful. And by hook or by crook, like it happened. If we talk about it sometimes now, that how on earth did we pull these things off? There's no way it should have been done at all. We must, like we're the Arabs, we must have some sort of genie lamp or something. We should borrow a wish. We're saving one wish for the next generation of kids at whatever their dream is, it comes true. Sean Davari has wrestled under a few names, including Sheikh Abdul Bashir and Davari, but now he's on the independent circuit as Sean Davari. Thank you so much, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. And now the spiel. So I was thinking about Ray Rice. I was being outraged by the fact that it takes a videotape to find that knocking a woman unconscious is outrageous. Or it takes a videotape to really believe that she didn't start it. Or that if Janae struck first, then Ray might have been justified in knocking her out and dragging her around. And not showing any sign that he was experiencing one bad moment. Oh yeah, one bad moment. That's what the Ravens originally argued. A bad moment. But does the video show that he struck her and then fell to his knees or that he put his hand to his forehead to say, like, what have I done now? It shows that after dropping Janae, Ray doesn't touch her with his hands. He kicks her a little with his foot while she lies unconscious face down on the ground. So there's your one bad moment argument. The NFL is having one bad moment. There's something about it that continues to really bother me and disgust me. I'm not even talking about the possibility that there might be a huge cover-up over the fact that the league might be lying about whether they saw the horrible video. What continues to bother me is encapsulated in this statement by Shauna Thomas, who's the co-founder of the women's advocacy group Ultraviolet. She said... We believe it's time for the NFL as a cultural force and league of role models to make drastic changes to address a culture of ambivalence towards violence against women. That phrase rings true. It is a culture of ambivalence. Ambivalence means mixed feelings on the one hand on the other. And on the one hand on the other doesn't work because if the one hand is being used to strike a woman, then there is no other hand. So the NFL thinks that now it's doing the right thing or thinks that it's admitting mistakes and getting in front of the issue because it says the tape changes everything. No, you're actually indicting yourself by saying that. You're admitting to the world that without the tape, maybe we have to take seriously the she started a claim, that we have to give credence to the claim, that you're implicitly saying that, you know, maybe that really matters, that this woman swiped at this heavily muscled professional athlete who could knock her out with one blow. But the big line of reasoning that the NFL is engaging in because they think it's morally exculpatory or cleansing or optimistic is inside this statement. I'll read it to you. This is something that uh, Giants owner John Mara said. I believe we took a significant step forward with the enhanced policies on domestic violence and sexual assault that were announced last month. I also know that we will be judged on our actions going forward. 
we will be judged going forward. It's almost as if there was never a player named Joe Van Belcher. Do you remember Joe Van Belcher? Last season, he murdered his girlfriend and then he took his own life. He murdered a woman. And where was the soul searching? Where was the what do we do? Where was the from this point forward? Here's another quote from yesterday. New York Jets owner Woody Johnson. This is an important issue, one that is much bigger than football and one that we must learn from as we move forward. Because we've obviously learned nothing from the past. In fact, we're clearly now, in this moment, not even thinking about the fact that we failed to learn from Joe Van Belcher's killing of Cassandra Perkins. Statements like the following by NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, this was issued a couple of weeks ago, are such an insult to the memory of Cassandra Perkins. Goodell said, I think it's important for the ownership to understand how serious we're taking this issue and the importance of the work that needs to be done. It's not just about discipline. We're going to step up every aspect of our program with education and training. Because last year, when a player killed a woman, that wasn't a wake-up call. Yeah, and it's not as if that the Joe Van Belcher murder-suicide was the only opportunity the NFL had to think about domestic violence. The San Diego Tribune keeps a database of NFL arrests. It goes back to the year 2000. The very latest entry in that database, August 31st, 49er Ray McDonald arrested for felony domestic abuse. The very first item in that database, January 2000, Rod Smith arrested for charges of third-degree assault and harassment for allegedly choking and hitting the mother of his two children at the couple's home in Colorado. I began clicking through the database. Let me read to you. Here's a random one-month period in 2001. I wasn't even searching for this. I just clicked on one page, clicked on another, top of the page. So this was May 2001. Giants defensive end Jeremiah Parker charged with aggravated manslaughter in connection with the death of his living girlfriend's four-year-old son. Same month, wide receiver Terry Glenn arrested in Walpole, Massachusetts, on domestic abuse charges. Same month, Kansas City offensive tackle Victor Riley charged with felony counts of aggravated assault and criminal damage to property. He allegedly rammed his vehicle several times into a vehicle occupied by his wife and infant daughter. A couple weeks later, running back Mario Bates, domestic violence arrest, slapping girlfriend. Two days after that, Arizona running back Michael Pittman arrested after an argument with his estranged wife at the wife's apartment in Tempe, Arizona. The database is only of arrests. It doesn't include all the restraining orders, all the court records, things like Terrell Suggs' girlfriend accusing him of pouring bleach on her and her one-year-old son. And now here's Roger Goodell on CBS yesterday. One case is too many. One. What we have to do is go back and say, if we have one case, that's something we've got to address. If we have multiple cases, we have to change our training and our education to try to eliminate that issue. Why wouldn't you believe Roger Goodell when he says that one case is too many? Could it be the hundreds of cases he didn't care about? So what was it about the Ray Rice incident that was different? Was it the videotape? Was it that Ray Rice was a great player in All-Pro? Was it that Jovan Belcher and Cassandra Perkins died in a smallish media market? There's another thing that bothers me too that makes me despair. It's that I actually believe in mercy and redemption. But when the punishment phase is so damn screwed up, you can't even do redemption and mercy efficiently. I resent that. I'm horribly insulted by Roger Goodell, by all his apologists, and everyone who uses phrases like learning moment or from this point forward. That's not good enough. In the NFL, coaches get fired, players get cut. 
The great selling point of the league is that it is earned. There are consequences, no shortcuts. Man up. Well, here you failed. You have failed for years, NFL. And what's the punishment? Goodell was paid $44.2 million a couple of years ago, probably tens of million dollars last year. And who knows? Unless it's found that he specifically lied about seeing a videotape that he shouldn't have needed to see if he had a conscience or a dollop of humanity where his wallet is. Well, this year, he'll probably also get paid millions of dollars. So how many dollars has Roger Goodell earned? I say one is too many. That's it for today's show. Hailing from parts unknown and wrestling out of the blue corner, producer of The Gist, Andrea Salenzi. Salenzi. And in the white corner, an incredible sight. Standing nearly seven feet, the undisputed wrestling champion, a man who calls himself the ultimate object of desire, the mountain of molten lust, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, the one and only Andy Bowers. There's a live culture fest in Los Angeles on October 8th. The guests are screenwriters Craig Mazin and John August of the excellent Script Notes podcast. More guests will come. Tickets are at slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. You can listen to the gist in SoundCloud or on iTunes. We are on Yo. You get the app and subscribe to podcast. When we're ready to go, we'll Yo. Now, I want to give you two different email addresses. One is our email address. You know how that works. It's thegist at slate.com. But then there's this email address, slate.com slash gist email. And that's where you go to sign up for a daily email that does the yo thing, but in more detail. Facebook.com slash slate gist is where you can see that video of Obama and uh, John Wayne, among other things. We have lively discussions there. Our Twitter feed is slate gist, accompanied by his manager, Bobby the Brain Heenan. He hails from Grenoble in the French Alps. He stands seven feet, five inches tall. He weighs 520 pounds. I'm speaking of Andre the Giant, but I'm really giving a giant thanks for listening.